Welcome to Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler. I'm Kent Lampert. Each week, we'll bring you a sampling of some of the best Catholic podcasts being prepared and shared out there on the internet. This week, we celebrate the baptism of the Lord when Jesus was baptized by John in the River Jordan. The baptism of Jesus marks the start of his public life and ministry. In a similar manner, our baptism marks our joining in the communion of the church and our call to ministry. Our first offering on this week's sampler comes from Catholic 101. Father Dominic Clemente discusses what is the sacrament of baptism and who can be baptized. I'm Father Dom, and this is Catholic 101. Today we're going to talk about the sacrament of baptism. Now, what makes the sacrament of baptism so special is that you become a new creation when you are baptized. And so all the baptized, as long as you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because that's the formula Jesus gave us. He said to the apostles to go forth and teach all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so the invocation of the Blessed Trinity is essential to the sacrament of baptism, which is also why we sell, uh, the Catholic Church accepts the baptisms of other Christian denominations as long as they're baptized in the way that Jesus said to baptize in, in the invocation of the Blessed Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's through baptism that we become members of the body of Christ, or you may hear of it as the mystical body of Christ. St. Paul says in his letter to the Romans that those who have been baptized have put on Christ. We've literally clothed ourselves and, became, and have become a new creation. And baptism, uh, many of the early church fathers said that baptism is the dying of self. And so it's in the sacrament of baptism that we participate in a very special and unique way in the Paschal mystery, which is the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so as a baptized person, we come with our original sin. We come with our old self that needs to be redeemed by Jesus. We enter into the font into the baptism font, either through full immersion or through water being poured on our heads or, or whatever it looks like, whether that's in a hospital room or in a church or in a pool or whatever. But we enter into that font in our old self, just as Christ entered into the tomb in his old self. And then we emerge from the font a new creation. As Jesus, we become Christ. And so we come out of the font as Christ came out of the empty tomb, as he came out of the tomb, making it empty and rising to new life. We too rise to new life in baptism. That's why baptism is so important, and it's, it's really the gateway to all the other sacraments. Only the baptized can receive the other six sacraments within the church. Because we need to be cleansed and we need to put on Jesus so that we can encounter him and experience him and share him through the other celebrations of the other sacraments. And so friends, baptism is awesome and it's a beautiful sacrament. It's a beautiful celebration, whether it's a baby or a full-grown adult who's finally coming to the faith and seeing Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Baptism is the sacrament that brings us into 
that mystical body of Christ where we become Jesus's hands and his feet and, and are charged then with the mission to do the work of proclaiming the gospel that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that he's come to love and to heal and to give mercy. And we carry out that mission as members of his body, as the baptized. I hope this has been helpful in explaining a little bit of the sacrament of baptism and its great importance in our lives of faith. If you haven't been baptized yet or your children haven't been baptized yet, bring them to church, come to church, get baptized, join RCIA, uh, come and find out how you can get your baby or child baptized regardless of their age and get them into this mystical body, get them into the life of the church so that they can receive the fullness of God's grace and become a new creation. God bless you all. Next up on Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler is an episode from Catholic.com's podcast series, The Council of Trent, featuring apologist Trent Horn. In this segment, Trent addresses the question, are atheists as dumb as rocks? Welcome to the Council of Trend Podcast, a production of Catholic Answers. Hey everyone, welcome to the Council of Trent Podcast. I'm your host, Catholic Answers apologist and speaker, Trent Horn. And on today's show, I want to talk about this question, are at least some atheists as dumb as rocks? Now, there are smart atheists out there. Graham Oppie, Paul Draper, uh, people I've interacted with at the Real Atheology channel, and smart non-theists, people like Joe Schmidt. But are some atheists just as dumb as rocks? Well, it depends. It depends on how you define atheism. Because some people might get pretty mad at me. Trent, that's really uncharitable. How can you say that an athe- there are atheists out there who are as dumb as rocks? That's really mean. Well, I saw a tweet several months ago from a prominent online atheist, Aaron Raw. And he was responding to someone else who was tweeting, saying all the things that he disagreed with or he was sick of. And one of the things he was sick of was saying that rocks are atheists. Uh, You know, atheism cannot be defined simply by a lack of belief. And so Aaron Raw simply tweets, rocks are atheist, end quote. And so there's a lot of people who define atheism in this way and say, well, atheism is a lack of belief. So if something lacks a belief in God, then it is an atheist, or maybe you might describe it like Aaron Ra does and just say it is atheist as the adjective. So if under this view, if rocks are dumb and rocks are atheist, uh, then there are some atheists that are as dumb as rocks because they are rocks. Now I know, I know, oh, Trent, this was, this was clickbait to get us to watch. I'm putting the Velveeta cheese over the broccoli to jump into some important philosophical terminology. But I do think it's important because we need to be able to define our terms and to make sure that our positions are well understood and that we're putting forward a position that makes sense, that's consistent, and has something, frankly, interesting to say. Because one of my biggest criticisms of defining atheism as a lack of belief is that it's just not very interesting. So that's what I want to talk about today. How do we define atheism? If you define it as a lack of belief, if you say that babies or rocks are atheist, then some atheists are as dumb as rocks because 
rocks are atheist under this view, which I don't think makes very much sense. Now, some people might push back and say, well, a rock is not dumb. A rock just lacks intelligence. But how would you feel if I said, oh, I'm not saying that you're dumb. I'm just saying that you that you lack intelligence. I think the, the point I'm trying to make here is I don't think it's helpful to define atheism in this way as merely a lack of belief. And in fact, traditionally in the history of philosophy and among contemporary philosophers of religion, including leading atheists who defend atheism, they'll say that's not how you define atheism. That's not what atheism is. Now, some of you all might be saying to me, Trent, there's actually some atheists. Why do you care? Just let us define ourselves however we want to. Well, I think it's important because for Christians and atheists to have good dialogue with each other, we need to come to the table with as few things uh, between us. And I think sometimes if you define a position in a very poor way, we can't get to the heart of the matter of what divides us. And what divides us is whether God exists, whether it does God exist or not. Not the presence or absence of belief in God, but does God exist or does God not exist? Or can we just not know either way? That's what I want to talk about today. So what I'm going to go through here is a few of these attitudes and phrases and slogans that I've come across online and offer you uh, some of my thoughts. I'm going to share some things I've written down here, actually, that I wanted to share for a magazine article, Catholic Answers Magazine Online, CAMO, as we like to call it. But I thought it'd be fun to share it with you first before I uh, tweak it a little bit. So here's the first attitude. Atheism is not a belief. It's just a lack of belief. So that gets to the heart of the matter, to say, look, as an atheist, I'm not saying that I believe something, I don't have a belief system. Uh, Atheism is not a religion or a belief system any more than non-stamp collecting is a hobby. Atheism is not a belief. It's not a belief that God does not exist. It's just the lack of belief in God. So what's my problem with defining atheism? That atheism is the lack of belief in God. It's boring. It's boring. It doesn't make a claim about the world. The philosophical claims, the isms that I want to talk about, are those that make a claim about the world, a claim that could be true or false. So theism is not the—I wouldn't even call it the belief that God exists. I would say theism is the claim that God exists. And so people who are theists, uh, they believe in God— Uh, But they believe in God because they would say that God exists. And I think most theists would say that they know God exists. It's not just a matter of belief, it's also knowledge. We'll talk about the difference between belief and knowledge uh, here shortly. So it's boring. Instead of making a claim about the world, like God does exist or God does not exist, or we don't know if God exists, it's just making a claim about a person's interior psychological state. And it's really boring and uninteresting because all it says about that psychological state is that it's absent. I just have, well, as an atheist, I have a lack of belief in God. So what? Who cares? If you think about it, we lack an almost infinite number of beliefs. How many beliefs are there that you lack? I mean, think about all, like, look, you know, my bookshelf behind me. Imagine you had all these encyclopedias of knowledge about the world. We probably lack belief in a lot of those things, right? There's all kinds of things that we lack belief in. So the question is not, do you lack belief in X? The more relevant question is, why do you lack a belief in X? That's what I would ask an atheist. 
why do you lack a belief? Because you could lack a belief in something for all kinds of reasons. Uh, let me let me give you an example here. So let's take a look at three beliefs. Belief number one, there are an even number of stars in the observable universe. Number two, there are an odd number of stars in the observable universe. And number three, there is a Santa Claus that delivers all of the presents on Christmas. So odd number of stars, even number of stars, Santa Claus exists. I would say nearly everybody watching this video lacks a belief in those three statements, but they lack a belief in those statements for different reasons. Take the number of stars in the universe. I bet you lack the belief that it's odd or that it's even, maybe because probably because you've never thought about the question if the number of stars is odd or even. So you lack a belief because you've never thought about it in the first place. And if you did think about it, like I'm getting you to think about it now, are the number of stars odd or even, you would say, I have no idea. And it's interesting. It's got to be one. It's either an odd number or an even number. But you would say, well, I don't know. You would be agnostic towards the question. So you lack a belief in those in those statements, one of which has to be true, by the way, either because you never thought about it or you did think about it and you have no way of being able to come to the right, figuring out which one's the right answer. Now, what about number three? There is a Santa Claus who delivers all the Christmas presents. I've defined this very particularly as to what I mean by Santa Claus. Not because people will say, well, I saw Santa Claus. He's at the mall. No, I am talking about a being who has abilities beyond what we understand, who is the cause of all of the presents appearing under Christmas trees uh, around the world. Here's what's interesting about this belief. For many people, they start life lacking a belief in Santa Claus when they're a baby. Then they acquire a belief in Santa Claus when they're a little child. I didn't do that. My kids don't do that. But for a lot of people, they do. They acquire belief as a small child. Then when they are an older child, preferably not like an adult, but an older child, they lack belief in Santa Claus again, but for different reasons. When they were an infant, they lacked belief in Santa Claus. When they're 13 years old, they lack belief again, but not for the same reason. And so if we had the same term, the same way of applying it to say that both those lack of belief are equivalent, then it would make rejection of the belief in Santa Claus kind of meaningless. And I think the same thing happens with God. If your lack of belief, if you say atheism, that Graham Oppie, world-renowned philosopher, has engaged William Lane Craig, others, very, very smart guy, that if he is an atheist and uh, this, this glass is an atheist, because both lack a belief in God, you know, your definition of atheist is it's just way too broad. It's got to focus on why do you lack that belief? Because the 13-year-old lacks a belief in Santa for a different reason than the infant. The infant doesn't understand what Santa Claus, the concept even is. That's why the infant lacks belief. The 13-year-old, hopefully by then, lacks belief in Santa because he or she believes that Santa Claus does not exist. And it's not a mere lack of belief. I've, I've spoken with some atheists online and I asked them, which of these statements is true? God exists, uh, Santa Claus exists. And, oh, I, ha I, I lack belief in Santa Claus. Santa Claus does not exist. I had this on a, a poll on my—I uh, asked you about it on Twitter a, a while back. And I had a fair number of atheists reply to that and say, it's definitely true they lack a belief in Santa. And I said, well, does Santa Claus exist? Is that true? And the only reply I got was, now, some people said it's false, but other people said there's no good reason to believe in Santa. 
I said, well, that's not what I asked. I said, is this statement true? Santa Claus exists. And they just said, well, I, no, I, I, there's no good reason. They weren't willing to say there is no Santa Claus. And, and I'm not sure why. I think it's because they were operating from the principle that they could not make a definitive claim that something does not exist if there is even a, a scintilla, a, a non, little non-negligible value that they could be wrong. They could not say they know there is no Santa Claus without like universal knowledge. Uh, but that's that's just not how that's not how knowledge works. You can know things with certainty, even if you're not absolutely certain. Uh, you could rationally say that you know God does not exist. I would say you're mistaken, but you could follow reason, and I think you'll make some incorrect inferences along the way. But you wouldn't be a raving lunatic if you said God does not exist. And conversely, I would say you would be correct and rational to say you know that God exists, even if you're not absolutely certain of it, even if you can't prove it to other people. So that's why when we define atheism, if people define atheism as a lack of belief that God exists, I'm going to say that's uninteresting. Who cares? My question is to you is, why do you lack a belief? And I think you could lack a belief in God for one of four reasons. Here's the four I'll lay out for you. Number one, you're not capable of believing in God. Number two, uh, you've never thought about God. Number three, you see no reason to believe God exists. You're not saying there is no God. You're just saying you have no reason to believe God exists. And number four, you have reasons to think there is no God. So you lack a belief in God because you know there, you say there is no God. Or you just lack a belief because you're saying, hey, maybe there's a God, but I don't see, think there's good reasons. So not capable, never thought about it, uh, no reason to think God exists, or you see reasons to think um, that God does not exist, or that the proposition God exists is false. So what's interesting is Graham Oppie wrote a book recently, I think it was published in 2018, called Atheism, The Basics. And Oppie defines atheism, and he defines it as the claim that God or gods do not exist. And so he talks about different types of people who might be atheists, and reason people one and two that I've shared with you aren't capable or have never thought about God. Oppie calls them innocence. Okay, He just calls them—he uses the term innocence, and he says, examples of innocence include— Infants, those with advanced Alzheimer's, adults who never acquire the concept of God, and so forth. In all of these cases, there is failure to believe that there are gods, but not atheism. So atheism is not merely the absence of belief in God. It is making the further claim that—and I would say, classically speaking, it is, the, it is a claim about the world. It is a claim about the world, and it is a claim about God, and it is the claim that God does not exist. Okay? So if, you're, uh, if you say God exists, you're a theist. If you say God does not exist, you're an atheist. If you say, I don't know if God exists or not, then you're an agnostic. That's make, so it's making a particular claim about the world. If you say, well, I don't believe in God because I don't see a good reason to believe God exists, I would ask you, do you think there's a good reason to say God does not exist? And if most atheists will say, no, by this kind of definition— then I would say, well, then you're an agnostic. So then you would fall under reasons three or four. You either see no good reason to believe in God, or you see good reasons to think there is no God. And I'm going to—and that, so if that is your position, then I can ask, are you number three or four? And if so, why? What are your, 
what are your good reasons to deny God exists, or what, why should I believe that there are no good reasons to believe in God? Now, when I bring this up and say that people who identify as number three, they lack a belief because they see no good reasons, that they're not atheists, they're agnostics, they'll say that now I've misunderstood the relationship between atheism and agnosticism, and they'll say, well, no, 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 I am an agnostic atheist. So what they'll say is that you're confusing knowledge with belief. They'll say that my definition of atheism is confusing knowledge and belief. They'll say, look, an agnostic says he doesn't know if God exists. An atheist says he does not believe God exists. So an agnostic atheist doesn't believe in God, but he's not saying he knows there is no God. A Gnostic atheist would say there is no God. An agnostic theist would be someone who believes in God but doesn't know if God exists. And then a Gnostic theist would be somebody who not only believes in God but knows that God exists. So what do I think about this term? First, there's kind of a parallel here. If an atheist says there's not enough evidence for him to be a Gnostic atheist, but he can be an agnostic atheist, he's justified to say, hey, look, uh, I I don't believe in God, but I don't know there is no God. I would ask him, is it rational to be an agnostic theist? I would ask these individuals, could you be someone who says, yeah, I believe God exists, but I I don't know that God exists. I just believe that God exists. I'd be interested to see their response, because it seems like they would be parallel or symmetrical to each other of being warranted based on the evidence. You just lack or have belief, but you're not claiming to know something. But really, I think the big problem with this argument is that it confuses knowledge and belief. I think even implicitly, it treats knowledge and belief as if they were alternatives, but they're not. Uh, Knowledge is traditionally understood as a subset of belief. So what this would mean is that if you have knowledge, it is also a belief. But not all beliefs are knowledge. Uh, the classical definition of knowledge, it's imperfect. There's a huge debate about knowledge among philosophers. There's even a group of philosophers that study what knowledge is. They're called epistemologists, so the study of knowledge, how we know things. And they're even divided about what knowledge is. But a basic definition, as I said, it's imperfect, but it's a basic one, is justified true belief. That's the difference between that knowledge is a special kind. Knowledge is just a special kind of belief. It is a belief that is true and is justified. So to give you an example, if I said to you right now, it's raining in Portland, okay? I'm just guessing. And suppose I I got my phone and I look on the weather app and it is raining. Did I know it was raining in Portland? Well, it's true. I have a true belief, but it's not justified. So we would say it's a lucky guess. It was not knowledge. But if I looked at the weather app first, saw that it's raining in Portland, and I said, it's raining in Portland, and it turns out it is, uh, then we could say that I knew it was raining in Portland. Notice here, by the way, and this comes up with, I think, a lot of atheists who won't make a definitive claim, either that God does not exist or acknowledge that someone could hold that God does exist. They set the level of proof too high. Like, well, I can't believe in something unless I have like absolute certainty or scientifically demonstrable evidence or, you know, he's got to have super duper high evidence. But that's just, we know lots of things and we don't have evidence 
nearly that high. I mean, weather apps can be, they, they can be mistaken, but I still know what the weather is in a lot of places, the, the vast majority of the time. So what I find interesting here is that if you're an agnostic atheist, okay, so if we're talking about knowledge and belief, but no, the difference between knowledge and belief is justification, then it sounds like an agnostic atheist is someone who lacks belief in God, but does not have justification for that lack of belief. That's what knowledge is, right? It's justified true belief. So an agnostic atheist would lack justification for his lack of belief, but a Gnostic atheist would have justification for his lack of belief. The justification is an argument saying that there is no God. So what I would say is that if you identify as an agnostic atheist, what's wrong with what I've said, that atheism is lack of belief, and the difference between knowledge and belief is justification. So if you're agnostic atheist, you don't, you don't have knowledge, you just have lack of belief. That just means you don't have justification for your lack of belief. So if you're an atheist, I would say, is, is that a good idea? Uh, usually atheists are very critical of Christians for believing things on faith, for having be- which they would define as a belief without evidence or belief without justification. So they're very critical of faith as belief without justification, yet they seem to be okay with lack of belief uh, without justification, if you're an agnostic atheist. Maybe there's some atheists who say, Trey, you're you're totally misunderstanding it. Hey, uh, sometimes I don't get everything right. If you want to write in the comments section below, by the way, I'd be happy to have a dialogue with an atheist who uh, holds to this lack of belief view. Actually, it'd be fun to have a roundtable because my friends at Real Atheology, uh, they would be on my side on this. Uh, So we could have a roundtable with uh, Christians and atheists who disagree about how to define atheism. So I think it doesn't make sense. And I think when a lot of atheists try to define what they believe, they sort of talk out of both sides of their mouth when they say lack of belief, but they also have good reasons for their lack of belief, which is making a claim about the world. I'll give you an example. This is from Dan Barker's book, uh, Godless. I've debated Dan twice. He's a former minister. Uh, We've had some uh, good debates with each other. This is what he writes on page 90 of his book, Godless. Theists do not have a God. They have a belief. Atheism is the lack of theism, the lack of belief in gods. I am an atheist because there is no reason to believe. Now, Look at this sentence because it waffles between three different kinds of atheism that I discussed earlier. Theists do not have a God. How does Dan know that? How could Dan know that I don't have, there is no God who corresponds to my belief in him? There is no God that I actually pray to. How could Dan know that? Unless he believes the statement God does not exist is true. So theists do not have a God. That would mean he's claiming God does not exist. They have a belief. Atheism is the lack of theism, the lack of belief in God. So uh, we have a claim that God does not exist. It's a lack of belief in God. I am an atheist because there is no reason to believe. So not just, you know, we have God does not exist, lack of belief, and there are no good reasons to believe in God, which is something that some atheists would say, but that's traditionally just agnosticism. If you say God could exist, I just don't think there's a good reason to believe in him. So uh, what's interesting is atheists 
they're agnostic. If you say, well, God, if you say, I'm not saying there is no God, but there's no good reason to believe in God, that's agnosticism. That's not atheism. Now, uh, because you're making, uh, now you are making a claim. Agnostics do make a claim if they're making a big claim about the world. So if you identify as an atheist and you say, there is no good reason to believe in God, you're making a claim. And in making a claim, especially if you want to change somebody's mind, I like the idea that the burden of proof falls on the person who is trying to change somebody else's mind. If you're a Christian trying to help an atheist believe in God, you have the burden of proof. If you're an atheist trying to help a Christian leave his faith, you have the burden of proof if you're trying to change somebody's mind. But if you're making a claim about the world, then you have a burden of proof you have to carry. And saying there are no such things as X, that requires a a burden of proof. Now, sometimes when I pose that question, atheists will turn around to me and say, well, prove God exists. Show me the good reason, and I'll retract my claim. But this shifts the burden of proof. If you say there is no good reason to believe in God, you have the burden of proof to to show that in some way, to, to mount an argument. Now, how would you do that? Someone might say to me, well, fine, Trent, are you saying there's no, you know, there's no good reason to believe in Bigfoot? Prove that, Trent. And I might say, all right, it'll take me a little while, but here, here is the purported evidence for Bigfoot. Uh, I think it's called the Patterson-Gimley film that shows what looks like Bigfoot walking around. It's probably a guy in a suit based on the movement of his gait. Uh, that we've never, you know, no bodies have been recovered. Uh, the tracks uh, and uh, things that seem to be belong to Bigfoot are ambiguous. You know, I would go through the evidence and show here's why it doesn't work. So there is no good reason to believe uh, Bigfoot exists. Uh, and then I might add on to that, if there were these uh, large hominids or large ape-like creatures, we would expect more individuals to cite them based on general zoological principles. So yeah, I'm willing to do that with Crypt and the most common examples are cryptids: Bigfoot, unicorns, uh, dragons, uh, fairies, uh, these kinds of things. So that's one reply. Another reply, you know, is just, "Well, show show me. It's your your job. You show me." No, it's it's not because I can invite another character into our dialogue to help me, and that would be one of Graham Oppie's innocence. Right? Think about someone who was never raised with the concept of God. And they just found out about God like five minutes ago. And they see there are theists who say God exists, atheists who say no good reason to believe in God. Theists, there is a good reason. Atheists, no good reason. And they see a debate between them. So this little innocent, maybe not little, let's say they're 18 years old, they just found out about this. They go up to the atheists and say, hey, what do you think about God? Oh, there's no good reason to believe in God. Oh, what's your evidence for that claim? The atheist can't ask the innocent, well, you show the good reasons. The innocent can say, whoa, 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 I'm on the fence here. I just found out about this like five minutes ago. These guys say there is a good reason, the theists. You say there is no good reason. I'll go talk to them in a second, but why don't you tell me your side? Or I did talk to them. Here's the reasons they gave me. Why should I believe you that these are not good reasons? So if you're an atheist and you make a claim there are no good reasons to believe in X, like the existence of God— or to believe in Christianity, whatever it may be, and especially if you're trying to convince other people of that claim, then I would say that you um, you have a burden of proof there. All right, here's the last one. I sometimes hear this. Atheism is atheos. The word atheism literally means without God, not there is no God. 
Problem is, you don't define a term simply by its root parts, the etymology. The word nice comes from the Latin word nescire, and that means ignorant. But nice is not synonymous with with ignorant or stupid. Uh, I like how Paul Draper talks about this, the atheist Paul Draper in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Here's what he says. The A in atheism must be understood as negation instead of absence, as not instead of without. Therefore, in philosophy at least, atheism should be construed as the proposition that God does not exist, or more broadly, the proposition that there are no gods. Uh, in fact, the equivalent of this claim that atheism is the belief that there, there is no god or gods uh, it can be found, as I said, in Graham Oppie's book, Atheism, the Basics, and Julian Baggini, who, or Baggini, who is also an atheist, in their book, Atheism, A Very Short Introduction. So I think that, once again, I, this is not nitpicky. For me, if you identify as an atheist, you either do so because you say God does not exist, and I think a lot of people see the burden of proof if you make a claim there is no God. But some people think you have no burden of proof if you're only making the claim there's no good reason to believe in God. Yeah, you, you do. I would ask, how did you come to that belief? Maybe not even how do you know it's true, but how did you come to the belief that there are no good reasons to believe in God? I would hope that you looked at the reasons, and preferably the strongest ones, and you found them lacking. That would be great. That would be my hope. If you're an atheist, I would just say, look, I would hope that you have looked at the strongest reasons to believe in God. Sometimes I like to ask, what is the best book on the existence of God you've ever read? Some people say, well, the Bible. Well, the Bible is not a book trying to prove God exists. It's a book written to people who already believe in God, telling them about what God has done. Uh, a book defending the existence of God, you should. You should look at what is, what is the best evidence out there. Well, Trent, are you going to look at the best books on the existence of fairies? Yeah, I read Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's book, the, I think it's called The Coming of the Fairies. And it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird book. It talks a lot about the Cottingly fairies, these alleged photographs. I don't buy it, but I've looked at the evidence. And I'll especially tell you this. If there were a book published by Oxford University Press, Harvard University Press, Yale University Press, defending the claim that fairies exist, I would read it. It was published by a, a tenured professor teaching at a major university like Oxford. Yeah, I would I would read that and see what they had to say, and then evaluate the merits of the argument. I wouldn't just immediately scoff, and that's what I would hope uh, atheists would do um, to check out some of the best books that are out there on um, on that subject. Uh, there's a wide variety you can look at. Uh, there's higher higher level. Uh, there's more systematic ones. Richard Swinburne's Existence of God is a classic. I really enjoyed Ed Fazer's book, Five Proofs for the Existence of God. The Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology is good. I wrote a book a while back, almost 10 years ago, called Answering Atheism. I think it's sufficient, but after doing this for 10 years, I think it's time to do a little bit of an upgrade. So that might be coming soon, I'm hoping. But yeah, if you're an atheist, I'd hope you would do that. And if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, and you're discerning the truth, uh, and if you, you feel called to do this, I... I would say it's good to examine what are the best arguments that other worldviews put forward and how would you show that those arguments don't work. I think it's important for all of us to be uh, intellectually honest in that regard. So hope that was helpful for you all. And yeah, thank you guys uh, so much. But don't forget, by the way, uh, to subscribe to us. Click like on this, uh, subscribe to the channel. 
And if you want access to things like my catechism series, my New Testament study series, go to trenthornpodcast.com, trenthornpodcast.com to find all that great stuff. Thank you guys, and I hope you have a very blessed day. If you like today's episode, become a premium subscriber at our Patreon page and get access to member-only content. For more information, visit trenthornpodcast.com. You're listening to the Lunchtime Podcast Sampler on Catholic Radio Indy. I'm Kent Blanford, and we'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy, converting the culture to Christ through radio, featuring 100% Catholic programming 24-7. Do your friends a favor. Tell them about Catholic Radio Indy. Hi, I'm Patty Cochran. Are you a non-Catholic who listens to Catholic Radio? Would you like to find out more about how to join the Catholic Church? There's a program called RCIA that can introduce you to the Catholic faith, and it's available at your local parish. You don't have to make a commitment to participate in the program. Just try it out. I did, and it was one of the best steps I've ever made. Contact your local parish office for more information and start your journey home. Alexa, what's the weather forecast for today? Alexa, what time is the Colts game today? Alexa, remind me to pick up the dry cleaning tomorrow. Has Alexa become a part of your daily routine? Then make sure that routine includes Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. Quick, easy access to Catholic programming 24-7. Just say, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. Welcome back. Our next serving on the sampler comes from The Quizzical Papist, a podcast by Father Brad Doyle. This episode takes us back to the topic of baptism with Father Doyle's homily for the baptism of our Lord from 2021. Gospel according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. This is what John the Baptist proclaimed One mightier than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop and loosen the thongs of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It happened in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. On coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came from the heavens. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. If you attended the Mass I said last week, or the Mass I said last week, um, you heard that I'm doing a homily series. So um, there's three weeks in a row where all the the homilies, the preaching, kind of goes together. And last week was the Epiphany. 
Just a recap, epiphany means God's revelation to us. Uh, think about it when you get an epiphany, you figure something out. The light bulb goes off over your head. It's an epiphany. And God reveals himself to the Magi. And then also today is an epiphany in which God reveals himself at the baptism in the Jordan. He says, this is my son. But I wanted to focus on these three weeks, not on the normal ways that God reveals himself. You know, the normal ways are scripture, tradition, church teaching. I want to focus on the unlikely ways, the ways that we don't always think about. So last week we talked about through the natural world, through our understanding of science. Talked about the star, what it might have actually been and how God uses the heavens, the stars, the earth, the world to tell us about himself. This week, we're going to focus on how other cultures and even the existence of other religions tell us about himself. This might sound counterintuitive, right? Because how is God revealing himself through the differences in the world. I thought Catholicism was the one true faith that brings everyone into unity. You know, when I was in high school, uh, I can remember being terrified. It was weird, but I was, I was scared of this certain class. It was world religions class because I strongly believed in my relationship with the Lord. I strongly believed in the truth of the faith. And yes, here I was about to study these other religions. The number of religions were scandalous to me. How can so many different people encounter or speak about the divine in vastly different ways? I had a great religion teacher my senior year. His name was Mr. Timmerick. And Mr. Timmerick was a man's man. He was a, he was a, a, a Marine. He had been there forever. He was one of those teachers where you learn more about like the stories he tells about his life than, than maybe the lessons he teaches. One of those teachers. Great. But I do remember one lesson he taught. He made us write uh, read a, a document called Dominus Jesus, Latin for the Lord Jesus, in which the church in the year 2000 clarified what is our relationship as Catholics to world religions? And how does God reveal himself to us through the, these differences? So I'm going to read a little bit of it to you. Dominus Jesus says this, in his discourse before the Sanhedrin, Peter says the following, and so it's quoting St. Peter in Acts. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we are to be saved. So it's being clear. And then later it says, it must therefore be firmly believed as the truth of Catholic faith that the universal salvific will of the one triune God is offered and accomplished once and for all in the mystery of the incarnation, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. So the church was saying, hey, Jesus is the fulfillment of all people. This is where we are going. This is why we have baptism. Think of Matthew 28. Jesus says, go to the nations, everybody baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism is necessary. So I was like, Whew, okay, cool. But then Dominus Jesus says this, and Mr. Timmer kind of explained it. In considering the values which these religions witness to and offer humanity with an open and positive approach, the Catholic Church rejects nothing of what is true and holy in these other religions. 
She has a high regard for the manner of life and conduct, the precepts and teachings, although differing in many ways from her own teaching, nonetheless often reflect a ray of that truth which enlightens all men. Let me break that down. Basically, the church is saying, and this is our belief as Catholics, that while other religions are man's search for God, it's man's search for God, Christianity is God's search for man. Think about it. Deep in the heart of every human person, no matter where you lived or, or when you lived, what part of the world, what continent you were on, what culture you were a part of, there's a deep religiosity. There's, a, there's a, a, a knowledge written in our hearts that there's something bigger than us. And so all these different religions prove that our hearts are made for something divine. And then God, after we searched for him for so many years, God came and searched for us. And that is Jesus. That is Christmas. That is the nativity. See, this is actually kind of a, a proof of God's existence, these other different cultures and other religions. Because wherever there's a desire in our life, there's usually a fulfillment of that desire. Think about it. When you're thirsty, you know there's water somewhere. When you're hungry, there's food. We, we don't have desires that cannot be fulfilled. You have a stomach, and there's food to fill it. And so if we have a great, infinite desire in our heart that will not be fulfilled by anything that isn't infinite, then there must be an infinite being who can fulfill it. I don't mean that all these other religions' doctrines are true. Muhammad is not God's prophet. Buddha is not God himself. And the wind and the sun are not divine. They're creatures. We read that in Genesis. I mean that the very existence of these other religions is proof of God's existence. Remember, the Magi that we celebrated last week were not Christian. They weren't even Jewish. They were Eastern magicians, like philosophers. They, they, were, they were foreign wise men, but they were open to God's revelation. They had this desire in their heart for something more, and they found him. This is why the church has never been afraid of other cultures or even symbols. Think about it. There's things that we have baptized, we brought into the church, and we're not afraid of it. Christmas trees had pagan origins. I don't care. Guess what? Because we baptized and we said, you know what? It's going to point to Jesus's birth. The carnival season, the winter feast day in so many different cultures and religions, the sun imagery and, and, and whenever Christianity encountered, whenever the church fathers encountered any culture or religion who worshiped the sun, we said, oh, we have a sun for you to worship. Not S-U-N, but S-O-N, the true sun. We're not afraid of other cultures and religions because every culture, every people's fulfillment is in the one true God, Jesus Christ and his church and the sacraments. The church is not then a particular culture. We have a particular culture in Louisiana. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of a Catholic culture. But this Catholic Louisiana culture isn't the only one. There's other cultures out there that are fulfilled 
by the truth of the gospel. This is why the church can exist in in the underground and in, in, in hiding from communist Chinese government and still exist as the church, just like it hid in the underground catacombs of Rome. This is why the church can rejoice with the symbols of Native American tribal clothing and vestments. This is why you hear the mass at St. Pius in our diocese in Spanish and then in praise and worship at Christ the King or gospel music at St. James on the river. Because the gospel fulfills every culture, is not afraid of differences. This is why the magicians from the east found their way to Bethlehem and laid their wealth before a baby. Because that baby did not threaten to destroy them or their culture, but rather promised to fulfill that culture's greatest hopes. I'll end with a quote from the first reading from Isaiah that we heard a a great prophecy of all nations, all people, no matter what you look like, what language you spoke, whatever your culture is, coming together to this place, to this manger, to lay down their culture before Jesus. Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, all you who are thirsty, come to the water. You who have no money, come receive grain And eat. Come without paying, without cost. Drink wine and milk. As I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander of the nations, so shall you summon a nation you knew not. And nations that knew you not shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, who has glorified you. We've just about wrapped up the Christmas season and those masses where you might have noticed some unfamiliar faces, those who make the effort to come to mass at least for Christmas and Easter, which I suppose is better than never at all. I've joked over the years that many of the physical postures adopted during the mass were there simply to make those people stand out. But we all know that every word and every posture adopted throughout the mass has meaning. In today's three-minute theology with Joan Watson, she takes on the topic of mass movements or Catholic calisthenics. I asked recently on Facebook if any of you had ideas for future topics, and I received this great question from a viewer. She asked, after receiving Jesus, we return to the pew and kneel to pray, But at what point do we sit back down? Some people sit after Jesus is placed back in the tabernacle. Some wait for the priest. I understand we're supposed to participate together. Could you address this? Well, first I want to address what we might call Catholic calisthenics. Why do we stand and sit and kneel at Mass? Well, it's because we're physical beings. We're not just spiritual beings. And so our bodies have a part to play in our prayer. There's also theological meanings behind many of these gestures. We stand to hear the gospel. We kneel when Jesus is present on the altar. The movements and gestures of the priest are outlined in the general instruction of the Roman Missal. And then they're in the Missal on the altar in what's called the rubrics, the writing in red from the book the priest reads out of and prays out of. And we talked about these in our series on mass movements. The general instruction of the Roman Missal also addresses what we as laity, the people in the pew, are supposed to be doing. But it's actually remarkably 
general. It addresses things like we're supposed to stand from the beginning of Mass until the end of the Collect. We're supposed to sit during the readings and stand during the Alleluia, right? We know of all these things. But the question asks, what do we do after communion? And it's interesting, the germ actually just says we may sit or kneel during the period of silence following the reception of Holy Communion. And so the general instruction actually doesn't really answer this question. Now, I love that the viewer said we're supposed to participate together because that's an important point. The Mass is a communal prayer, and so our actions should show the unity of the people of God. The general instruction actually says a common bodily posture to be observed by all those taking part is a sign of the unity of the members of the Christian community. And so we should be doing these things together as the people of God. There are also times where we might have personal acts of piety, personal gestures that we do. Some people beat their breast when the, at the elevation of the host. And these are ways that maybe you find helpful to unite your body and your mind and your heart with what's happening. So after communion, you really have the option. Now, there are customs that happen, and a lot of times it's for good theological reasoning. A lot of times people aren't sitting down because they recognize that Jesus is still present in the chalice before purification. And so it's okay to remain kneeling. It's okay to sit down too. The church doesn't actually legislate it. And so one thing we want to be careful about is legislating something that the church hasn't legislated. Sometimes our parish communities adapt these customs, maybe even liturgical actions or liturgical gestures on the point of the people that the church doesn't legislate. And so we just want to be careful not to make something a, make something a law that's really simply a custom. So I hope that helps. I hope that answers the question. And that's a little theology in three minutes. That's all the time we have for Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler for today. You can find this show in podcast form at catholicradioindy.org, along with links to more of the programs we've shared. We pray, Lord, let us be cognizant of the gift of baptism. May we always remain true to the promises given and received in this most blessed sacrament. Amen. I'm Kent Blanford, and until next time, may God bless. You can hear the Holy Mass every day at 8 a.m. right here on Catholic Radio Indy. Did you miss something in this show or just want to hear it again? Podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org.